Okay, uh, turn to Acts chapter 23, and if you need a Bible, we have Bibles for you, and don't feel weird, we'd love for you to take one and keep one if you don't own one, or at least follow along with us today as we go through the text. Uh, super helpful, you know your, uh, how to navigate around this thing, because it's the Word of God. Okay, um, if you haven't been with us, uh, we've been in the book of Acts which is the story of the early church, right? So Jesus had risen to heaven. He gave a mission to his people, go and take the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus lived a perfect life, died the death that all humanity deserved to die, and then raised on the third day to give new life to all who would believe in him. That good news, that gospel, he says, church, go take this to the ends of the earth. And what we've seen in the book of Acts, through the author Luke, who kind of followed the apostles, the early leaders of the church, followed them around and said, okay, I'm going to write all this, I'm going to document all this, and what we've seen in the documentation is that it has worked really well. And so what started as this kind of ragtag bunch, you had 11 apostles after uh, one traded on Jesus, right? You had 11 in Jesus that now has expanded to tens if not hundreds of thousands of people across the Roman Empire and beyond, and so what we pick up today uh, is, is kind of the home stretch of Paul's ministry. Now, again, if you haven't with us, the first eight chapters are primarily about God's work through a man named Peter, and then nine through the end of the book are about God's work primarily through this guy named Paul. If you don't know Paul, I'm just clarifying for some of you new folk. Paul was like this anti-Christian, like he persecuted the church, tried to kill Christians, tore them down at every possible chance, and then in this amazing, miraculous moment, God saves him on the road to Damascus, blinding light, and he hears the voice of Jesus speaking to him, and he gives his life over, and he becomes a follower of Christ, and then turns into the greatest evangelist and church planner this world has ever seen or known. A huge testimony to the resurrection and the reality of Jesus is the fact that this guy who once hated Jesus, hated Christianity, hated the movement, hated all those people, all of a sudden became the greatest evangelist this religion or this world has ever seen, okay? And so Paul now is coming to the final stretch, and as he gets closer and closer and closer to the end goal of God allowing him to preach the gospel before Caesar in Rome, okay, uh, persecution is ramping up. And the more and more I go back, and I've been just trying to read the narrative of Acts over and over and over, not just the passages we've been privileged to preach on, but just keep going back and rereading and rereading. And the more I read this story, I just have to look at Paul, and I have to ask the question, like, how in the world does he do it? Like, like if you just look at the narrative, everywhere he turns, both outside the church and inside the church, he experiences heavy persecution. Like at every turn, you think he finally gets to Jerusalem where his buddies should come and rally around, but even they, we saw last week, come up against him and he has to then reorient them back to the gospel. Or you have the Romans who are certainly against what he's doing because he's raising up this faction of people that are worshiping Jesus instead of Caesar. I mean, these are big problems and everywhere he goes, he gets persecuted, stoned, beaten, imprisoned, mocked, and shamed, and yet he continues to push forward over and over and over. And I for the life of me, I want to just know why. Like, how, how does he persevere so? And some of you guys, you're in an experience right now where you look at your life and you're like, man, enough is enough. Like, you've, you've just had it, right? Like, you've just, enough is enough. There's been so many bad things that have been piled up on me, and, and I don't know what to do. And then maybe you've heard promises that if you're a Christian, well, it gets easier and it gets better. And that's just not a truth. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. Paul and Jesus are perfect pictures of sometimes it doesn't get better, it gets worse. But the church is still called to faithfulness. 
in the midst of whatever this world, whatever the other people in this world might throw up against you. And so again, I have to ask the question of how in the world does he do it? We keep hoping that maybe there's, I think, even in the Christian heart, this kind of karmic understanding of the way, well, if I just keep doing good, then good will circle back for me. But that's just a foolish statement. Karma, the way it's understood often, which is even just a foolish understanding because karma is meant to be speaking about the next life, not this life. But you often hear, I just saw a story on Facebook recently where it was this old lady who got robbed by this younger man. And you're just like, come on, man. Like, first of all, that's messed up, right? But second of all, you're like, uh, the, the passage was, well, karma will come back and get him, right? And, and if that's true, if this whole karmic system, this, if we invest well and, and we do good things, that all this good's going to be poured upon us, or if we do bad, all this bad will be poured upon us, if we apply that to that theory, if bad was circling, it's going to circle back to that guy, couldn't we then look at that situation, look at that old lady, and say, you know what, she probably did something bad last year, and so it was just coming back to get her. Right? If, if that's the way we're going to analyze, we're going to put this karmic understanding of the way life works, then that old granny, I, maybe she's an amazing person, but not in that system. In that system, she hurt somebody else, so then what she got, she deserved. Why do we feel bad? But that's not what the Bible preaches. And the Bible says, listen up, church, because of this one single major truth that I think motivates Paul to be able to persevere over and over and over in the midst of the worst persecution you and I would ever experience. And that, and that truth is this, and I've done a lot of study on it. I mean, a lot of study. I've put in a lot of time on this. And, and that truth is that Jesus is real. Okay? Now, I know you're sitting here like, man, I was hoping for something more. <laughs> like, I, I, I was thinking there's going to be a, a, something a little more profound than, yeah, he's a real guy. I think the more I read the book of Acts, the more I read the Bible, and the more I see these figures just continue to persevere in the midst of this trial, this increasing persecution, I think it comes down to the simple fact that these people just believed Jesus was actually a real guy and he was still alive. Now, one of my favorite movies of all time is this movie called Rudy, okay? Uh, raise your hand if you've seen it, okay? Okay, for the rest of you, I don't know why you're here, okay? Uh, but Rudy is just one of my favorite. It's like this underdog story, you know, but if you don't know it, uh, essentially Samwise Gemji, so before he saves Middle Earth, he plays Notre Dame football, okay? And so, so Samwise grows up just wanting to play Notre Dame football his entire life. And then he realizes after he graduates high school, he's not good enough or smart enough to get into Notre Dame. And so he spends two years going to Holy Cross Community College in South Bend that if he gets good enough grades there, he can transfer into Notre Dame and hopefully, just hopefully, be a walk-on on the football team. Now, that's his vision. And so at the, towards the end of his two years, it's his last chance to make the transfer from Holy Cross into Notre Dame and he hasn't gotten in. Multiple applications, he's just not getting in. Eventually, he goes to the church, and he sits before the priest, and he says, Father, like, what am I doing wrong? Like, have I not prayed enough, he says? Have, have I not been at service and worshiped enough? And, and the priest, you know, the father just kind of, he's kind of ch laughs and chuckles. He says, no, no, it doesn't work that way. And he says this one line, and he says, um, you know, son, there's only one incontrovertible fact that I've come to know to be true in all of my years of ministry. And he says that there is a God, and I'm not him, okay? And you're like, wow, that is, that's wise, and that's profound, that's amazing. And the more I thought about that, I thought, no, that's not great, 
That's terrible theology. That's terrible doctrine. And I think many of us live in this, I think many in our culture live in the reality that we think, well, there is a God and I'm not him, right? So then if, if, if it's ambiguous like that, then we can be free to then choose what we want, right? We, we can kind of, okay, if there is this God, but, I, but it's not me, there's this whole range then of what he could be, which allows for me to like, I guess I can do this. Or I can not do this, sin of omission. I don't have to go and love my neighbor because, ah, eh, he could look like anything, Now, I think other people, instead of there is a God and I'm not him, they live in there is a God and it's me, right? So so it's not like it's just not ambiguous. It's no, it's very clear and it's me. I, I make the decisions for me. I'm autonomous. The choices of my life are my choices and no one else's. No one influences me, et cetera, et cetera. And I think many live in that reality too. I think the reality that we see Paul living in Throughout the book of Acts, especially as persecution continues to ramp up, and I think the main reality that you and I, if you're here and know and love Jesus and consider him Lord and Savior, that the reality we have to live in is it's not there is a God and I'm not him, it's not there is a God and it's me, it's there is a God and his name is Jesus. Okay? Like, there is a God and his name is Jesus, meaning there are certain things that it means for me to follow this God. I don't have just this freedom to make my own decisions. I can't just then, when persecution comes up against me, say, no thanks, because, no, I have Jesus to look to as my example, because there is a God and his name is Jesus. There's no ambiguity. So if you're here and you're a, you're a Christian, like, this, this is what you're on board with, the other two need to go bye-bye. Because there is a God and his name is Jesus. Now, I think the reality oftentimes is, is that we kind of float in between all three. The desire of my heart, the desire for our church is that we would just stick with that one. Instead of like, well, okay, I guess I'll do Jesus because it's Sunday morning and everyone's looking and I want to, you know, make Jesus love me more. Uh, but, but once I leave, you know what, like I... I don't really want to go love that person, so I'll make this decision for myself. Lest the fact that Jesus all along the way continued to preach to love your neighbor as yourself, lest the fact that Jesus considered always for you to lay down your life for the sake of the other, no matter what barrier there might be. And so I think the calling and I think the reason why Paul can persevere, the answer of how does he do it is I think he understands that Jesus is real and that he's God. And if he's real and he's God, that has to have significant implication in the way we live and we respond to the life that comes before us. Okay. So um, what we're going to give, we're going to have four main truths that are kind of like sub that main idea. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you two on the front end that Jesus modeled for Paul. Okay. And then we're going to get two on the back end that Jesus entitles or gives or promises for us now. Okay, so the first one, Jesus was also hated and mocked and persecuted, right? So Matthew 10, 22 says, you'll be hated all for my name, hated by all for my name's sake. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, this isn't often the, like, the altar call sermon you get, right? Like, hey, come be a Christian. Everyone will hate you, right? No, it's life's going to be so great and grand and you're going to love it and it's so much better and it's joyful and you can raise your hands and people will hug you. That's going to be awful for some of you actually. 
It's like Verity's worst nightmare. Like my wife would be like, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Um, it, it hated me. It'll hate you too. No, no, this, this is the call. Now, there is, hear me, there is joy. But that joy is not coming from the world, right? It's coming from what? The presence of God, per Psalm 14. Right? There is gentleness, kindness, but that's what? That's from the fruit of the Spirit, per Galatians. So, so the joy, the goodness that we often talk about when we talk about the gospel will make your life better is nothing external that the world will give you. It's everything internal that God gives through his presence, through his salvation, through his spirit indwelling the believer. Okay? So, so, th- so this is the first reality. So I think Paul is like, okay, he's, he's real and he's alive, but man, he also was hated too, so why should I expect anything different? And I think the reality for the church today is that our expectations are wildly off about what we deserve in this world. Now, and I think some of that is because we've had the benefit of living in a nation where we've had freedom of religion for the last 200 plus years. And so we can come and we can gather and we can do this. And for the most part, most people largely agreed with what we preached out of this. But that is less and less of a reality, which puts us more in a time like the early church than in the recent church. And so I think hey guys, it hated me, it will hate you too. What are the expectations when it comes? And so when persecution comes, when hardship comes upon your life, what's the expectation for your response? And I guarantee you the expectation of God is faithfulness. It's consistency. It's saying, okay, God, I know this is terrible and this is hard, but I will push forward because so did you, okay? This, the second truth uh, is that Jesus' life wasn't about him Either. John 5 says this, truly, truly, Jesus speaking, I say to you, the Son could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And so even Jesus, who is God incarnate, God in the flesh, says, I do nothing of my own will. It's not, listen, there is a God, and he's like, and it's not me. It's, it's, it's the Father is the way he's viewing this. I submit fully to the Father's will. So I think Paul then thinking, okay, well, well, Jesus is God. Jesus is my Lord. And so I don't make these decisions for me. I make them for him. I do nothing of my own accord, but I only do what I've seen my father Jesus do. And I think this reality, he says, all right, well, Jesus modeled this too. There's no way for me to get out of this. I, I can't navigate my way to where if I think he's real and I think he's alive. And church, I ask you today, do you think Jesus is actually real? Like, do you think he's actually alive? That he's here with us? That if you're a Christian, that Jesus' spirit lives inside your heart this morning? Like, do you really believe that? I think Paul did. And I think that's why he's like, well, you modeled it, Christ, so I will continue to walk the way you have walked and not seek my own glory, not seek my own fame, which is a difficult thing in our culture. We all do the, the Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat type of thing where it's like, I got to look really good. Even, even Finley, my little three-year-old the other day, okay, we are at the dinner table. We're getting ready to start eating. He says, Daddy. I said, yes, Finley. He says, can I have your phone? I said, sure, what's up? He goes, I want to take a picture of my food and put it on Facebook. <laughs> Which, on one hand, shows how terrible of a parent I am, but then that he would know all that. And then, and then two, you're like, man, this early, bro? Like, already you're taking pictures of your food that no one really cares about? 
But this is the culture, hear me. So you'll hear all this today, and my guess is that if, you, if you're here and you love Jesus, you believe in Jesus, that you, my hope is, right, at least, that you'll leave somewhat convicted by the word of God this morning. Be like, okay, he's right. He is real. He's with me. But I guarantee you, the moment you leave, you will have a competing narrative and story that will tell you that everything that you heard this morning is not as true as you heard it, okay? And so you're going to have to fight and navigate through that just as I will. And you need the family, you need the community, constant people to say, hey, no, 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 here it is. This is the Bible, right? And that's what we do. And so these are the first two. Now, um, I know that was like the longest intro ever before we get into the text. Here's the way I'm going to read the text is, is very much like a, like a librarian to her uh, kind of gathered kids as we read a story because the narrative just kind of pushes and then I'll do some recaps in there. But let's start uh, in verse 30. It says this. But on the next day, Desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's priests? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay, so Paul, again, just just doing the right thing, preaching the gospel, trying to show people love, live in grace, at times even in a healthy, non-compromising some of his conviction for the sake of being able to continue to love and preach the gospel. And in the midst of it, they still want to beat him, they still want to arrest him, they still want to tear him down, okay? So even when you make the best decisions, it doesn't always work out for that. And so here he is standing before Ananias, the chief high priest of, uh, of the Jewish people, and this is a, he- a heavy position of authority. And if you study up on Ananias, bad dude, like not a good dude, okay? And so Ananias and him begin to have this conversation. And this narrative, uh, which is kind of a Paul versus the Sanhedrin type of thing, Sanhedrin being the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and all that. So Paul is having this interaction, and it is eerily similar to the same one that Jesus had at the end of all of, of the three synoptic gospels, okay? Where Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin, stands before the high priest, and is also then accused, hey, are you saying this? And then Jesus said, no, I said this. And then Jesus was struck. And then Paul now, hey, are you saying this? No, I'm doing this. And then he is struck, again, both times falsely. We see Paul, I think, constantly saying, all right, no, this, Jesus did this. Like, I remember this. I read about this. I heard about this. And so I'll do the same thing. And so Paul is struck, and then he lashes out, and he calls him a whitewashed wall, which, again, is not all that new. Matthew 23, 27, from Jesus' mouth, speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness and so again paul i saw what jesus did i heard what jesus did he's real he did this let me walk a similar path and he looks upon the scribes you whitewashed wall you strike me when you yourself are trying to uphold that it's all about the law and everything i'm saying is wrong but you yourself disobey Leviticus 19.5, which says you cannot persecute nor strike an individual without a fair trial. So he comes right back at him and says, no, no, see, you hypocrite. And again, walking in the path of Christ. Continue on, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived 
that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out at the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and this assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify also in Rome. So, quick recap, okay? So, he now goes before, again, in, in this, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are standing again. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees do believe in the resurrection. So, so Paul, in, in wisdom here, turns the two against each other and says, ah, you know, what I'm here about is just talking really about the resurrection. And so he kind of inserts this, this little problem that they're going to have. And so the Pharisees are like, oh, resurrection. Like, no, 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 we believe that. We're, we're with you, unlike those crazy Sadducees, because Pharisees didn't like Sadducees, Sadducees didn't like Pharisees, because there was always a competing uh, kind of battle for power amongst the religious elite during that time. And so all of a sudden, there becomes this infighting. The Sadducees want to kill Paul. The Pharisees are like, we better get him out of here. We find nothing wrong. And then the Roman tribune, seeing that he's about to be torn apart, takes him out of the situation, and he is delivered and saved. Okay? Now, verse 12, or verse 11 is, is the key verse, maybe of the entire text. Because after Paul is being taken away, and here's what I wonder. I wonder if, like us, where I feel like we can kind of move in, in those three things, right? There is a God and I'm not him. There is a God and it's me and there is a God and it's Jesus. I just wonder, Paul, listen, he's a human. This isn't Christ we're talking about. This is, this is Paul with emotion and fear and anxiety and frustration and hopes and failures and the whole deal. I wonder, I just wonder if maybe that was like a mini breaking point for him. Right, where he's like, man, I'm running hard, and it's, it just keeps coming up against me. And then he finally gets to this moment where they're going to tear him limb from limb, right? Like, like, tear him to pieces. And I wonder if, if Jesus was just like, you know what? He, he needs me right now in a real profound way. And so Paul is pulled away, and Jesus goes and meets with him and speaks to him and says, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify also in Rome. Take, take courage, Paul. Remember me, my presence, my word. And then he goes to continue his journey. And there's this moment as, as I think, how did he do it? He, he believed that Jesus was real, right? He saw what Jesus has done, and then he experienced the presence of Christ in his life, and he heard his voice. Now, some of you here, you're thinking to yourself, well, I wish I, wish I would hear his voice, right? And, and I've had that thought too. Like, I've been in a situation where I've read stories like that, and I'm like, well, dang, man, like, I, I wish I, I want to hear him. Like, what? speak to me, Lord. And then I had this, this, this revelatory moment, which isn't all that revelatory. Probably everyone in here is like, yeah, moron, right? But for me, I was like, oh, yeah, there's this, right? There's, there's and this one, Hold on. There's like 700 pages of him talking to me. And yet I set this, I'm not going to throw it, love you, Lord. 
uh, I set it down and forget it frequently. Right? I, I don't memorize it enough so that when I'm, when I'm in these moments, I don't hear his still small, still small voice speaking through his word to tell me truths like, he will never leave me for, or nor forsake me from Hebrews. Right? I forget these things. Uh, let's see, uh, Matthew 20, 20, right? I am with you always unto the end of the age. I, I forget about these truths. When he has spoken and spoken and spoken and revealed and revealed and revealed and told us that he is always near. That Psalm 139 even tells us that even if we try and run away from the guy, he's still there, right? He's like that annoying fly. You're like, dude, everywhere I go, this little fly. Picnic. But Jesus never, ever is distant. Now, we might experience it as distance, but that's not on him. That's on us. Okay. And so Jesus promises to be near always. His presence promises the fullness of joy. And so listen, okay, we've handled the hearing thing. So no, he's spoken, so hear him, Okay. Um, and then listen, and that's not, to, I think sometimes, and I've got friends that I trust wholeheartedly that say, no, like I've heard him audibly go. And I'm like, dude, that's amazing. Good for you. I have not, but man, that's a, like awesome. Your faith must be weaker than mine. I didn't need that, you know. Um, just kidding. Um, I'm just playing if that happened to you. Um, but no, so, so I think sometimes he does do that. And, and man, praise God that he intervenes and speaks because he's the sovereign Lord who is real and alive of the universe and he can do whatever he wants. Okay, and so I think sometimes he speaks like that, but here it is, right here, read this. Um, but then the second part is uh, his presence. Now, I've got a buddy and he's sitting here in the room today and I'm not gonna call him out because I know he'd be embarrassed. But I got a buddy, okay? And anytime his wife is gone during the evening, okay, uh, and it's time for him to go to bed. Now, he's, and he's a big dude. He's strong. He, I think he could handle himself. Uh, but no, he, he, he locks the front door, like puts a chair in front of the front door, okay? Um, puts like little race cars with stuff. He home alones his whole home, okay? <laughs> so he goes full Macaulay, okay? As we call, hashtag full Macaulay. You can, um, he goes and he shuts himself in his room, right? Like he's holding a gun. Uh, I'm exaggerating the story a bit, but that's kind of, he's just, he's super anxious when his wife is gone, right? Like just, like there's anxiety, there's some fear, some frustration, there, there's all that kind of stuff. There's this emotion, like I'm gonna die, okay? Um, but when his wife is near, he doesn't do any of that, Right? And it's not because his wife is all that physically capable, okay? It's not that his wife could just crush any oncomer, okay? It's just simply her presence brings peace to his life. And, and, and he doesn't, at night when he's sleeping, when he lays down, when he lays his head down, he doesn't see her, he doesn't know she's there. She's just there and he's at peace. The Bible is replete with constant communication that he is always near you, that he is always with us, that his presence, Christian, if you're, if you're here and you're a Christian, that his spirit is in you. It like can't get out. It's like in you, so it's not even, the, it's there. <laughs> Believe it and experience the peace that comes with his presence. Psalm 14, the joy, the fullness of joy that comes from his presence. And it's, okay. Um, 
Let's, uh, I'm not going to read the next couple passages just because for time's sake, uh, but let me just give you the narrative. In the next verses from uh, 12 to 22 in, in the next chapter, which if you didn't know, we already kind of jumped to the next chapter before, but in verses 12 through 22, essentially what happens is, is 40 plus uh, of these Jews who are upset with Paul's preaching, uh, they gather together and they say, hey, we will not eat and we will not drink until we kill Paul. Okay, which is just funny because if you look at the narrative, the plan is for him for them to go and kill Paul the next morning, and it's already nighttime. So, like, we will not eat for nine hours until we kill this guy, right? And so, what they do is they go and they plot to kill him. They say, What we're going to do is we're going to go to the high priest. They go to the high priest, say, Listen up, high priest, I want you to go to the tribune, the tribune, the the Roman official who's helping to guard Paul. Tell him to bring Paul out here because we just have some matters to discuss with him. And then when he comes out, we will kill Paul. Okay, here's what happens, though. Paul's nephew, full invisibility cloak, okay, um, hides somewhere. I have no idea how he overhears this conversation. Holy Spirit, probably, right? So he's there. He overhears the plot to kill Paul. He goes to prison, tells Paul. Paul says, well, go tell the tribune. So the nephew runs, tells the tribune, hey, here's the plan. These guys are going to come to you. They're going to say, hey, will you bring Paul out? We got to talk to him. Don't do it because they're going to kill him. So the tribune believes the kid, and then in the next verses, in verses 23 through 35, okay, uh, knowing he's in danger, uh, the tribune then is going to send him on to Felix the governor. Now, here's what's amazing again about this story, is that constantly you look upon this vision that was given to Paul that he would go and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to all the Gentiles, and through that, the fulfillment was really often seen as he would end up in Rome and preach to Caesar and the Roman people directly in their hometown, okay? And the way he is getting there is by a bunch of people trying to kill him, forcing him to move to where he eventually gets to Rome. God is the author of this story, okay? Because he's real and he's alive and he's orchestrating and authoring even in the midst of our own failure, even in the midst of people trying to distort his plan. It does not work, okay? And so Paul ends up there. We, we land with this last part of the text in verse 31. It says, so the soldiers, uh, that the tribune had called, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and he learned he was from Cilicia. He said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And so he goes, Felix hears the case for a moment, right, and says, all right, that's worth it. Okay, so here's what we'll do. We'll go ahead and, uh, come on in, yeah. Um, We'll we'll go ahead and hear your trial, and that's what we get to pick up next week. Um, But here's our last two points, kind of, okay, again, on the front end were these, these two kind of main truths that we saw Jesus model that I think allows Paul to continue in perseverance and hopefully should be an encouragement for us in this day, no matter what the hardship, whatever the impending wave upon your life is, and there will be more. Okay? Um, no matter what that is, that we could stay faithful to the calling we've received. Now, number three, that third point of there is a God, his name is Jesus. Jesus' life then and his life now are our only hope. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have, uh, have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of, hold, of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And the needs are great and you all have them. And I don't know what all of them are. And sometimes they feel greater than at other times. But in every time, the call is to go to the throne room of God's grace. It's to approach Jesus. It's to talk to Jesus. It's to love Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. It's to read what he's said to us. It's to learn what it's to listen. It's to speak. It's to go and proclaim. It is all of these things that mean that he is Lord and Savior of your life. Okay. And then the fourth one, the last point for us today. Um, if there is a God and his name is Jesus, and this is the main calling that he is real, he's alive, that I think moves Paul and should move us is that if he is, if, if he is God and he is alive, then he absolutely must be Lord and Lord of all. And he says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so hear me, like if, if you're here and you're a Christian and I ask you, do you actually believe he's real? Like, do you believe he's alive? And if the answer is yes, he must also most certainly be Lord of your life also. He can't just be Savior. He's got to be both. And I think Paul got this. Paul got, okay, you saved me, man. I remember Damascus Road and that was incredible. But you're Lord also. So if you're Lord, what you say goes and I will listen. But man, if, if we line up in one of those other two realities, that there's a God and it's, it's, we, it's not Jesus, it's just something, and I'm not him, that whole idea, then you can skirt around this lordship piece. And then when God's command is to persevere, you don't, because you don't have to, right? When God's call is to go love your neighbor, and you don't, because you don't have to. But no, if he is real and alive and you believe it, he is Savior, he is Lord, and he demands that we respond as such. And dude, that, that is not easy. That is hard. And we fail all the time, but then again, we return back to Hebrews, which tells us, then approach him and be reminded of his grace. Because grace says, you know what? Yeah, of course you're going to screw up. You're just a human. But get back up and try again this next moment. Because he's real. Do you, t church, do you believe he's real? I mean, it's that simple. I know it's like, what? Like, leave, do you believe that in every moment he's with you, he's alive, and he's real, and he is the Lord and Savior of this world? Now, here's where I want to land us. And it's with me not talking. Um, and so I'm going to invite Andy up here. And so just to give you a heads up, I asked Andy to do this at 8 a.m., which is an hour before serve, service started. So she has not spent any time really thinking about this. This is based on a conversation her and I had this week that after finishing prepping this text this week, I just felt like everything her heart was communicating was just this. Like, in, in, like, like I, I oftentimes, like I look at Andy and say, like, how did she do it? Like, how does she do it? Like, how does she love Jesus the way she does and love people the way she does? And so she shared some of her heart this week about that and, and how it hasn't always been easy and the whole deal. And so I just wanted her to kind of go and talk, and she's probably going to cry a bit, so bear with her. Um, but yeah, so do your thing, and if I need to jump in and save you, I will. So Andy Zyman, everyone. Hello. 
Um, if you've been around me for more than 10 minutes, you know that water just flows from my eyes. It doesn't really matter if it's happy or sad or anything. It just happens. So I'm sorry if that makes you feel weird. My <laughs> poor husband, it happens no matter what the, if it's a good or bad day, it's just, it just happens. So yeah, um, yeah I just had a cool conversation with um, a pastor down in Phoenix that I actually have the privilege to work for as well as um, Redemption Flagstaff. And I was just reflecting, he was asking more about my life and um, I was just reflecting on the last uh, seven, almost eight years in Flagstaff. And um, yeah, I think for me, I was more attesting it to, or just talking about redemption and the culture of redemption. But um, I was just reflecting on like the decisions of my life and as a sophomore in college, like what I envisioned my life being, you know, so I was like, I want to be a fashion journalist and I want to like move to a big city and I want to be like cool and awesome <laughs> and all these things, you know, and yeah, the Lord just like totally flipped that up on its head, you know, and I can only attest that to Jesus. Um, so you'll hear me like talk about myself, but that feels weird. I, I'm not trying to build up myself by any means, but I had a lot of dreams for my life that just didn't happen. I, I uh, went to college for communications and hoped, yeah, to move to a big city. And over time, the Lord just changed my desires and he changed my heart. And it wasn't about me as much. And it was about him. And I stayed in Flagstaff reluctantly after college. And I was very frustrated by it. I was like, why am I here? What am I doing? Um, because I met my husband my senior year and I was like, dang it, I think I'm going to marry this guy. I guess I have to stick around. <laughs> dang <laughs> it, Josh. He's such a, uh, such a gift. But um, yeah, I worked at a restaurant and I I did not get like a cool job like all my friends got. I just didn't. Uh, I worked at a restaurant part time and I worked doing stuff for the church a lot and um, just tried to grow, tried to learn more about Jesus, um, tried to get involved, tried to be discipled. And it was hard, for sure, really hard. Um, and then, yeah, I got married to Josh, which also was not my plan. He wanted, he was about to start school. I was ending school. And so I was like, if you want to stay in Flagstaff, we cannot be together because I don't want to do that. And there's no jobs and there's no opportunity for me, for me here. But I felt the Lord leading me to um, be married to Josh and we're, we got married, and he was in school, and I was working a job I really didn't like, but um, we just felt like, I just felt like we had to stay, or yeah, I just felt like I had to get, or wanted to be married to Josh, obviously, and stay in Flagstaff, and we just got more and more plugged in to the church, and then, yeah, when it came to the time of, do we stay in Flagstaff or do we go, um, so much of our heart's desires were like, wow, well, there's all these opportunities in all these other places. And that would really allow for a much more comfortable life, right? Because we were still living like college kids. And that was very frustrating to me, um, given that all my other friends had all these other opportunities and were like living these cool lives. And I really wanted that cool life, you know? And I, we just couldn't, like, we just felt like the mission was here. And that's really what it was about more than anything else. And then the Lord, via Vince, called me to work for the church and fundraise my salary, which sounded like the most ludicrous thing I could ever think of. I was like, that is the opposite of what I would ever want to do with my life. And he provided, like, abundantly. And he still does. Like, it's crazy. He just keeps providing and keeps providing and keeps providing. And then he 
provided a home. Um, like I said before, Josh and I, you know, like we live in Flagstaff. We're living the Flagstaff life, like low income pretty much. And he provided this like home for us in Sunnyside where the Peak School is. And Josh has been um, on teaching soccer there. And yeah, we just, when we thought about our lives, we always thought about like, um, living in, if we stayed in Flagstaff, living in Sunnyside, because we wanted to love those people. And so as I'm telling all this to this guy, uh, my boss, I'm like, just in awe of the things that I'm saying, because I'm like, this is not my heart, you know? Like, my heart would have never moved intentionally into a low-income neighborhood to love people. Like, it just wouldn't have, you know? My heart wanted me. Like, my heart wanted me to have a cool life that I could Instagram all my cool food, which <laughs> I still do. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but way more expensive food in, like, San Francisco or something. <laughs> And as I looked at my life, I was just in awe of the heart that God has produced in me because it's, it's him, you know, and, and it's like Vince was saying, it's because he's real and it's because when we follow him, he changes things and he changes our <laughs> desires and he just, he's real. He, he reveals himself to us and his Holy Spirit is in us and it changes our hopes and our desires to be less about us and to live out the gospel. So yeah, I was just saying this to Vince because I was a, f a junior when I started going to Redemption and I just thought, wow, what a cool culture that Redemption has cultivated in my heart and in my marriage that I think like being two years married, like we will never be the same ever. Like Jesus has just totally changed our life. So um, I was just saying that to Vince and he wanted me to share and I was like, great, cool. You want me to cry on stage? Thanks a lot. <laughs> but anyways... Yeah, and I, I think what's so amazing, about Andy and Josh, you know, is like, uh, and and to be very clear, like if if you feeling like God, you want to be a fashion designer, that's cool. Like, yeah, totally. so that w the, the whole point is not don't be a fashion designer, work for the church. We hate that mentality. Like, don't do that. Okay, um, what we're saying is is that when God says something different, do you listen? If 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 all your desires are this, but all God God's desires are this, who wins? And what I've been so encouraged about Josh and Andy and, and is just, they just kept saying Jesus wins. And, and so just church, like, I, I just ask us too. again, it's not about, and, and, and hey, they did get a house. You might not get a house. So like, don't hear that either. Okay. Uh, like we're not handing out houses, you know, like, yeah, whatever said, they'll give me a house. Um, what we are saying is that, uh, and, and knowing Andy and knowing Josh, like there are hearts are filled with the joy of the Lord in circumstances where most of the world say that shouldn't exist, okay? And, and it's because they just kept allowing Jesus to win their decisions, okay? And, th and that's what Paul's doing because Paul, man, listen, this guy could have done anything. Like he was, I mean, he was the Jew of Jews, a Roman citizen, educated, taught by Gamaliel, like we said last week, was like the Michael Jordan of, of, of like rabbis, you know? Like this guy had everything on a silver platter, yet he let Jesus constantly win, and that's how I think he remains faithful. And so I'm going to have Annie, will you pray for, for us, and then, uh, and then we'll move into a time response. Jesus, thank you, God. Thank you that you're real. Thank you, God, that when you feel far, you're right next to us, God. Um, thank you, God, that you have purpose for each person in this room. Lord, and it might not look at all in the way that they expected or hoped or dreamt, God, but it's good. 
God, thank you that your plan is good. And thank you, Jesus, that you're coming for us, Lord, that um, you're the redeemer and you, you're after redemption and you want to redeem the whole world. And so when our lives, we start to get tunnel vision for what we want and how things aren't going our way, God, just gently submit, help us to submit to you, God. Help us to follow your will, not our own. Help us to confess, God, when we are making ourselves our own God and following after ourselves. Or when we are saying, yeah, it could be, it's ambiguous, who knows what it is, and just living still selfishly for ourselves. God, we want to be children who follow so closely after you and that the world sees and wants to know that God. Um, so let us fiercely chase after you, Jesus. We thank you um, for your word. God, we thank you that it impacts us. I thank you, God, that it has impacted me and that it's alive and moving. And, and Lord, I'm just so thankful that I can I reflect back on my life and see all that you've done. And God, I know the faithfulness of you. And so I know eight years from now, I'll be doing the same thing. And God, I attest that fully to you. So I pray today for these people as we respond now, Jesus, convict us, move us, um, love us, God. Help us to just do your will. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.